1: Welcome
2: to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones and my guests today are Robert Holtzman and Fernando Restoi, co-editors of Central Banks and Supervisory Architecture in Europe, Lessons from Crises in the 21st Century, published by Edward Elgar. The European economy and financial sector have been stress-tested by pandemic and war, but compared to the period between 2007 and 2012, the experience has been remarkably stable. The recapitalised banks have held up well, so by and large has the quality of their assets despite 10 years of slow growth and low inflation, followed by enormous volatility, high inflation and interest rates heading to two-decade highs. How much of this has been luck and how much due to the rethinking and redesign of the European banking supervision after the searing experience of financial and debt crises and what still has to be done? To answer these questions, Robert Holtzman and Fernando Restoy have pulled together 20 contributors from Central Banking and the Academy. Since 2019, Robert Holtzman has been governor of the Austrian National Bank and his country's representative on the European Central Bank's Governing Council. Formerly an economist at the OECD, the IMF and the World Bank, Professor Holtzman has taught economics full-time in Vienna and Saarland and as a visiting scholar at Harvard and Oxford. Since twenty seventeen, Fernando Restoy has chaired the Financial Stability Institute of the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, trained at the LSC and Harvard, Dr. Restoy joined the Bank of Spain in nineteen ninety one, and rose to the position of Deputy Governor, Chairman of Spain's Crisis Resolution Authority, the FROB, and a member of the supervisory board of the ECB's Single Supervisory Mechanism. Welcome both of you to the podcast. The first, I, my first question really is the, the first four words of your joint introduction are why this book now? Uh, when did you decide to put it together and how did you choose your contributors?
0: If I may start out, uh, it came about that uh, when I joined the uh, Austrian National Bank, uh, there was a discussion whether. Uh, the Austin National Bank should relinquish uh, its remaining competence on supervision to a special body, the financial market authority or not. Huh? And as I had to acquaint myself with the arguments, I looked around and found many different and alternative uh, arguments pro and against uh, certain aspects of uh, content as well as structure. And uh, so I told my staff. I think it would be important uh, to have a conference uh, because there's there are topics there which don't have simple answers, as always in economics, but here specifically. And uh, the second part, of course, is that uh, to acquaint myself with the key uh, specialists in this area. So we organized a conference at the Austin National Banker, invited many people, and then. Once uh, the conference was over, we said, oh gosh, we have so many interesting papers there. Not all the topics are covered, perhaps, if and as we invite the one or the other person, we would have a greater conference volume, which would really be the first one which tries to bring uh, uh, together the different thinking, not yet a common story of them, and the uh, so after conference, then I called up uh, Fernando Restoy and uh, asked him, uh, you uh, know much more than I do about it. So would you be, want to be willing to come along? I can cover some of the uh, uh, more monetary and, and uh, central bank thinking. Uh, you are the specialist in area. And he said, yes, And After one and a half years of hard work, uh, the conference volume came out.
3: Yeah, if, if, if I may, first, good morning uh, to everyone and thanks for this opportunity. Yes, I think Robert described very well the, the process. It was his idea, actually, just to put together this volume after the conference that uh, the Austrian National Bank organized. Uh, I think it was, the end of 2019. Um, he, and then, well, of course, we started uh, well, discussing what type of people could actually be invited to participate in this volume. I think we came out with the idea that probably we will need a good combination of of people who will actually have some background, some policy experience, as well as some strong academic background. So they were able to put together theory and practice. And we were very happy, actually, to have the possibility to to put together so many many, uh, brilliant, actually, Uh, Authors and we are very happy with the end result of this. Mm. Yes, I
2: was thinking that when I I was reading it, that you really do have a cross-section. How how long did it take you to to corral these people to, to bring them to the conference?
0: I think the conference itself, which took place in 2019, it was not too difficult. And this is the beauty of Vienna and of the National Banker. Many people like to come to Vienna, as you know, may know the most uh, uh, desirable place to live in in the world, at least according to some some magazines. Uh, and uh, we are renowned to have uh, good conferences, treat the people well. Uh, but still, as always, you know, you have uh, to uh, tell them how important it is that they are there. And it then took some time to add a few more And then also, they're all busy people, so to control them, to deliver on time. So it was not too much work, but it was still work. Uh, And I think at the end of the day, everybody enjoyed.
2: Well, I'd like to come to a a central question, a recurring question throughout the book, um, is whether and how to separate the core function of the modern central bank, maintaining price stability and financial stability through micro and macro prudential policies. Where did both of you end up after reading the chapters and after the conference compared to where you were uh, before?
0: If again, uh, I can start out on this side, because this is how to say the to banker still is challenged uh, from many directions. So even after reading this, after having that, I have a clear understanding, but I'm still not uh, sure how best to do it. My thinking at the end of the day is, if I look now what happens at the uh, uh, ESRB, European Systemic Risk Board, where we have different uh, uh, participants, not only from uh, the uh, euro area, but also from the outside, uh, there are many ways in order to organize it, What is this the cat. Uh, so at the end of the day, what matters is that one has a kind of an integrating uh, uh, instrument like the a board which helps out there uh, where it is settled at the central banker uh, and how much it is outside has nowadays in my view a secondary uh, uh, importance this may be a specificity of the euro area this may not be applicable to the world outside and uh, 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 Fernando knows much more about what happens outside what it means uh, but uh, uh, for me uh, there's still the big question which is above this or is linked with it, is uh, This is the role of Central Bank for financial stability uh, uh, because uh, uh, this is something uh, which I I think we will discuss throughout here. Who is responsible for that? Because sir, uh, uh, what we have is actually that we have the price stability in our, in our constitution ECB uh, uh, constitution, but financial stability actually came in from the side. Is not extra there, but quite definitely, uh, we 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 need to work on it, and we take uh, have to take this uh, into uh, into account. So, at the time being, uh, I don't think that the uh, institutional separation is is much matter, but to have a mechanism which helps that you have a a joint. Uh, assessment of it, and then make sure how to say you take the right uh, the right uh, action. Who does it, in my view, has less of an importance.
3: Yeah, if, if I may add something here, of course, um, this is an issue we have been discussing uh, over the course of the preparation of the volume, uh, for, uh, and, and myself, uh, also looking at the contributions of, of the different uh, authors. I mean, my own personal uh, sort of conclusion after going over those issues already for some time is that there is already an emerging consensus that, of course, these two functions, economic or monetary stability and financial stability, are inherently interrelated. I think nobody could actually question that. Very hard, actually, to get economic stability without financial stability in other way around So that certainly implies that that, um, you cannot separate too much actually those two functions. You cannot just basically say that I'm going to assign one particular function to one particular agency without one particular instrument. And you will have actually the same for the other objective to another different agency with different instruments, right? So things are much more complex than than that. Um, Of course, there could be different institutional arrangements, as Robert was saying, uh, in which that type of interrelation could be fully actually acknowledged and recognized. My personal view if you ask me is that indeed I think it's a good idea to have central banks with uh, financial and financial responsibilities and more concretely with macro and micro potential responsibilities. but they fully agree that there could be other arrangements involving more than more agencies uh, but as, as uh, Robert was saying it's important actually that in that case, you have sufficient uh, coordination. There are important efforts to get common understanding on the policy needs, actually, in terms of both uh, monetary and financial stability. If this coordination happens with two separated agencies, fine. Otherwise, of course, you will have to rely on a single agency uh, being able, actually, to internalize all the synergies and inter- interrelations between the two objectives.
2: Yeah, it, it, in his chapter, uh, Paul Tucker um, looks into this argument um, of the the argument of an ultimate goal for central banks being what he calls monetary system stability. Uh, and this ties into what you were both just saying. I was reminded of the real world example of this in, in 2012 with the ECB's famous whatever it takes argument, where the ECB's central mandate was perceived to be uh, keeping inflation a little under two percent, but ultimately that mandate meant preserving the currency because without that, you know, everything else changes. What, what did you make of his argument for this uh, monetary system stability uh, mandate? Is it is it is
0: it doable? Well, my sense is we actually have it now, because uh, uh, my take is that. Uh, it's difficult to have financial stability without price stability or to have price stability without financial stability. So even if we don't have a mandate, it's our own interest to make sure, and this is what I understand also from Paul's writing, and he said monetary assistance stability, that it covers uh, uh, covers uh, both, uh, both parts of it. Uh, uh, the question is only when it comes to... Uh, System stability, the broader part of it, uh, what are our instruments to use? In some cases, uh, to say we can only control, or in many cases, only control. We have other partners there which influence uh, the uh, financial system stability. And a, a, a typical example, what I currently see, sir, has to do uh, with the application of monetary instruments uh, at the moment where we have to take account of what does it do about the financial uh, uh, system stability. Example, quantitative easing. Uh, We have decided uh, that we want to start with quantitative easing as of uh, March this year, but we start small. And the reason is that uh, uh, we would like to have a faster reduction of our balance sheet, but we are not sure uh, whether the uh, financial system is stable enough or whether there will be some hiccups as we had it in the UK recently in order to disrupt the process. But there's very little what we can do in many cases in order to assure it. Quite often we don't have even information, so we do it slowly. To gain experience and then will increase it as time goes on. So, it shows that in our application of a policy, we are, how to say, hampered by that. But on the other hand, how to say, uh, we take account of that, uh, where in reality, there are other institutions uh, which influence it, even if they can't do anything in specific to do it. So, my take is we have. It's our own interest to make sure financial stability takes place, but we don't have always the instrument to be the master of this universe. So we have to make compromises and we have to be careful.
2: Yeah. Actually, can I I have a follow-up on that, which is something that may have worked in the opposite direction when during the middle of the pandemic crisis, one of the instruments you used to ease policy was... um, Uh, softening the terms of the three-year loans. And this ended up at this stage, as you're trying to, as you say, as you're trying to uh, tighten policy, the two, the the financial stability issue and monetary policy started to work against each other. Would you see that perhaps as an example of where where having the two uh, um, mandates within the same house became a problem?
3: If I may, on on this, um, frankly, Tim, I'm not sure that uh, the pandemic uh, was a good example of time possible friction between different, actually, objectives. I think um, I would stress, basically, the opposite. Um, What happened over the pandemic, uh, certainly almost after the pandemic outbreak, immediately after the pandemic outbreak, in March, April, 2020, what, what happened there is that there was a sort of almost spontaneous convergence of views of different policymakers in different policy domains. Uh, at that time you had actually of course fiscal policy makers relaxing fiscal policy dramatically in order actually just to try to compensate the shock that the particular lockdowns would have had on, on income. There was actually monetary policy makers, of course. They uh, sort of um, adopted a quite uh, quite an accommodative policy stance, relaxing even more the already accommodative policy stance they had before. You have macro-prudential authorities actually sort of releasing the counter capital buffer, so again adopting expansion in macro-prudential policies. And importantly, micro-prudential guys actually even relaxing supervisory standards, uh, giving priority to the continuation of credit flows to the to the real economy over a, over a, well basically trying just to protect banks from you know the the shocks that would, would have to, to suffer so it was a sort of um, sort of a connection uh, even a spontaneous uh, coordination if you want across policymakers for all of them to try actually to preserve both economic and financial financial stability if i may just going back also to, to to the other example you pointed out before which is the famous whatever it takes sentence by by mario draghi um actually it's often forgotten that what draghi said is not only we will do whatever it takes to preserve the euro blah, 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 but he added within our mandate and indeed uh and this was uh, often forgotten when people refer to to that particular that particular uh, episode, um, and this is important because I think the philosophy behind ECB's actions at that time and afterwards as well was that uh, whatever they do in terms of, for instance, trying to mitigate uh, and warrant the interest rate differentials in parallel markets, um, whatever they do in that in that domain it has to do basically to try to Preserve the adequate function in the monetary transmission mechanism. At the time uh, Mario Draghi actually expressed his famous sentence, was a time in which there was huge redenomination risk in European capital markets, and that was impairing dramatically the monetary transmission mechanism. And the ECB could not do a good job in those circumstances. So it could, w- it could well, uh, it could well actually understand actually the ECB's actions and Mario Draghi's sentence. Uh, as something which is pretty much in line with, with with the mandate of the ECB. The only thing they did, of course, to, is to interpret it, um, and rightly so, in a relatively broad way. But there was, frankly, it, it is not necessarily to think that, they were, that the ECB was stretching its mandate. I mean, you could justify very well what they did at that time, and they have continued doing that to some extent more recently, uh, has to do with, actually, with, the, with the core mandate in terms of protecting, actually, Adequate monetary policy making, adequate functioning of the, of the monetary transmission mechanism.
2: Yeah, actually, um, just your, dis, your uh, discussion there of stretching the mandate brings us on to a very interesting theme that's covered in two of the chapters by um, Ignazio Angeloni and David Archer, where they, they talk about this idea of actually establishing what they call, quote, explicit emergency mandates so that you don't have, that it's clear to people in advance how a central bank would react in, in, in an emergency. Where, where do you both stand on this after the, after the conference and, and, and the book? Uh,
0: I have to say at the conference and even now I'm a bit skeptical about it. Uh, and the reason is that uh, from a conceptual point of view, It sounds pretty neat. You know, you have two states of the world, a normal one, an exceptional one, and of course you should have different instruments there. But in reality, you know, in the middle of something, uh, first of all, when do you call it saying, now we're exceptional? And the second part is how do you define it? Ex ante. And each uh, crisis is different, even if economically, how does it, something to do? So my take is yes, one could make conceptually the pointer, but from the point of view of implementability, I would have my great doubts that this will work. And from what we have seen uh, during the recent crisis, that's the only one I have got to know so far, as a central banker, uh, I don't think there was a need for that. I would say we didn't stretch our mandate by doing what we did.
2: Well, actually, can I, can I come, come back to you on that because you were there at the time when the pandemic emergency uh, purchase program was um, initiated in uh, spring twenty twenty. Um, you you did have an instrument available to you in in the form of the outright monetary transactions from twenty twelve, but you you went for this much bigger, uh, more symmetrical program. Did, did you have any hesitation at the time that this this might be exceeding your mandate? Were, were you comfort, Would you,
0: in any way, be more comfortable with an explicit mandate? Uh, frankly speaking, we never had a real discussion about that, because uh, when we had the pandemic and come uh, February, March, what we saw was uh, a dramatic uh, fall in out in in, in and so we knew we had to do something bigger and if you recall we had come forward with a re- relatively small sum first 120 billion and the market struck it off not sufficient so we had to come up with our 750 and the market said okay that's it that's credible so uh, we didn't have time to think even about whether we would exceed it uh, and we didn't have the feeling that we exceeded we were there Working with InterMandate to make sure that this uh, demand fallout didn- doesn't lead to something which, at this time, was still highly probable, that it would a def- def- deflationary development. So we did what we needed to do, and even nowadays, I think uh, we are confident we did the right thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Rastore, how how do you feel on the explicit mandate
2: point?
3: Um explicit mandate. Uh, that you mean the issue about the, you know, the need? Yeah, an emergency, emergency
2: mandate. mandate. Yes, yeah, so actually having something in advance so that uh, yeah. all uh, economic actors know oh. where the central bank stands. Yeah,
3: you are right that there are a few, uh, a few authors uh, who really actually stress this point. Also, and as you said before, actually there are a couple of chapters which we'll touch up on this particular matter. Well, it depends very much. I think for this particular uh, issue, probably you cannot actually sort of establish a, a general doctrine. Uh, it depends very much actually on the sort of uh, democratic culture in different uh, jurisdictions. In some cases, actually, central banks have a broad mandate. They say trust actually they're going to use it in a, in a sensible way in order to protect uh, social policy goals like economic, monetary, price stability. In other cases, actually, the checks and balances operate in a different way, so that uh, you basically need uh, to work on providing legitimacy to central bank actions in different situations. In this latter case, which is probably the one in which, uh, the one which had uh, David David Archer, and, and Tucker had in mind, well, could make sense, actually, some sort of provision in the central bank's statute. That in you know particular circumstances they could what modify some of their tools in order to achieve their social policy goals without needing to request actually explicit authorization at that at that time, but relying on some sort of export expo, expo, expo accountability. Frankly, I think very much uh, this depends very much actually what are the tradition, the cultural traditions, that then you know how what is actually the the type of uh, the stringency of the parliamentary controls or central bank actions that you could observe in different jurisdictions depending on that you may need actually to go for one or another institutional arrangements mm-hmm.
2: yes actually on that point uh, as you say both charles bean and paul tucker talk about this idea of uh, political accountability which becomes more important after emergency situations but in the experience of both of you and you have a lot of experience of mm-hmm internationally and in your uh, uh, domestic political field. do, do you can, can you give me examples of where you feel that parliaments or congresses have held a central bank effectively to account? Because you, you it does require a combination of uh, highly technical ability and political now. Are, are there examples of this? Because I've never seen one.
0: Well, I have to say, I was just preparing this morning with my staffer uh, an intervention at Austin Parliament who was requested to come into that. Uh, and uh, uh, it's not the first time. Uh, and uh, the typical part is, clearly, we have our inflation mandate. So we reacted during the crisis. Now the question is we have the inflation. The question is, uh, do we do the right thing? So going up there, of course, questions come, should we have acted earlier? good question, which I have answered differently in the past, perhaps to some of my colleagues there. Uh, But at the end of the day is, uh, are we able to live up to our mandate, which is price stability, and here then uh, uh, explaining why, for whatever reasons, this can happen, this cannot happen, exposed uh, what is always, of course, more informed what may have happened, uh, but uh, this kind of accountability, where the sovereign calls up uh, the governor and the vice governor by law, going there, explaining, and uh, getting tough questions. This is how the this is how the process is, and and, and this is how it should be. And uh, for me, this has never created an issue. And from here, for my colleagues, or, some get tougher question others get left past question but in all cases you have this uh, 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 regular uh, discussions with the parliamentarian sometimes outside of it, in order to explain what we are doing. You have to get your buy-in, but also, have to say, here's something critique and explaining where they may be right, they may not be right. And this is the way how I take my responsibility as a governor, but also my responsibility to explain to the sovereign our work.
2: And in Spain, did you have the same experience, Dr. Yes, uh, absolutely.
3: Absolutely. Um, um, of course, when you are a member of the of the, of the Eurozone, as happens to Austria and, and Spain, accountability is not much on actual monetary policy actions. It is normally the Spanish Parliament is about actually actions taking other domains that at the time I was a deputy governor were still under responsibility of the Bank of Spain, talking about uh, you know crisis resolution or even banking, banking supervision. But I think, uh, in general, people understand accountability not as, you know, eventually the governor or the central bank going to the parliament and sort of receiving instructions from elected officials. I think it's it's a, it's a different thing. I mean, accountability should be understood as, I think, Paul Tucker uh, put it very very nicely. Um, accountability is part of the you would call a constitution, right? The Money creates constitution. He, he, so you have actually so first delegated objectives, delegated functions. You have a number of instruments that you can use in order to achieve those delegated objectives. And then you have the accountability regime, right? So accountability is basically to, that you should prove that you are delivering on the objectives that you are to been delegated uh, to. So um, um, and then whenever now, for instance, a good situation, a uh, very useful example to see that of course, central banks had to go to their parliaments and to explain why inflation is so high. I mean, how comes that, despite having a central bank with a present stability mandate, inflation is whatever eight, nine percent? So, and then you have actually the governors going to the parliaments. They all go; they are all going uh, now to the parliaments, explaining what they are doing, what are the causes of inflation, why monetary policy is not uh, actually able to deliver lower inflation in the very short term and, and you know emphasizing that the, way the the care is about actual inflation expectations over the medium term they are now doing what they are doing in order to, to anchor inflation expectations so providing all those explanations to, elect, to elected officials and the public at large to people as robert, robert was saying for people to understand uh, what the central bank is doing and the type of uh, the type of objectives they are trying to they are trying to achieve and frankly, this is working uh, well uh, uh, in general. Um, again, but then you have actually just to be clear that accountability does not mean that the European Parliament could actually provide you with specific instructions what you do or you should not do. Accountability is about you explain what you have done, how you have tried to achieve your mandate, and to explain what are the sources of deviations from your, your, your mandate.
1: Okay? This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: fundamental issue uh, in Europe. Um, this is covered in their chapters by Torsten Beck, but also by Francesco Paolo Mongelli, Christopher Koch and Karin Hobelsberger. They look at the unfinished business of the of the deep reforms that have happened in the Eurozone since the uh, crisis 10 plus years ago. A chief among these are the failure to break the doom loop between the sovereigns and their local banks, and the continued national fragmentation of single market in banking. And that one, I, that's been going on as long as I can remember. Why do you feel this has been so hard to crack for so long?
0: Fernando, if you could start out, since you have the long experience, and then I come in with my experience, it's much shorter. Well, I mean, uh,
3: you have this, the banking union, uh, I mean, you want to simplify, actually, the objectives of the Banking Union, I could just say that this is about trying to denationalize banks' risk. Um, So we are halfway, actually, in trying to achieve that objective. It's great. We have a single supervisory mechanism. It's great that we have a single resolution mechanism together with a single resolution fund. Um, But it's not enough. I mean, basically, we need to work on deposit protection. And we don't currently have an European deposit insurance scheme. And without that, of course, you, you have not fully achieved the objective of denationalizing a banks' risk. Why we have not made more progress on this? Well, it's politically very complicated. It's about you know, another source of mutualization of, uh, of risks, which is not you know uh, to an idea which is not particularly appreciated in some jurisdictions, sometimes with very good reasons, particular People understand there could be, it makes very little sense to work on de-nationalizing, denationalizing, say, the liability part of bank balance sheet deposits, but not doing something similar on the asset side. And of course, people have in mind the excessive domestic bias or sovereign portfolio by commercial banks. And on that basis, they are proposing actually just to establish some sort of regulatory, regulatory uh, penalties for excessive concentration of sovereign holdings on the, on the domestic sovereign. So that obviously triggers a very difficult political discussion, and frankly speaking, it's a big failure of the European um, Union that we have not been able actually to, uh, to deliver on the officially declared third pillar of the banking union, which is an European deposit insurance, uh, insurance scheme. Yeah, so far, it's not in the agenda, unfortunately, of the minister ministers. I hope very much it's going to come back to the agenda soon, but it's not, not yet the case. But what is? In any case, important to, to bear in mind, if I may, as uh, expand it a little bit more on this, is uh, that even we have a fully fledged banking union, you will not expect, you should not expect to have overnight a optimal integration of the banking market in Europe. So integration implies basically to have more pan-European banks, so bank operating banks operating in several European jurisdictions. This is not going to happen now. This is not happening now. This is not going to happen either, probably even if you had a fully-fledged banking union. And the reason being is that at present, there is no business case for banks to operate in other European jurisdictions. And this has to do very much with the structure of the banking industry in Europe, and in particular with the overcapacity of the banking industry. Simply, simply, there is no business case actually for banks uh, to operate in other jurisdictions, because it's going to be extremely hard for them to compete in those jurisdictions, because sometimes it's very difficult even actually to acquire banks in other jurisdictions, for instance, if they are under cooperative or civil banks type of statute. So all those structural obstacles are the ones which are probably more relevant uh, to explain why we don't have sufficient uh, European banking integration. And the
0: experience uh, for you, Governor Holtzman. Well, I agree with what uh, Fernando has said. I would add two aspects. Number one is that we have already uh, an increasing share of people that take uh, deposits uh, outside and uh, uh, do this uh, because uh, uh, they see that the rates of return they receive there is higher than uh, they would have at home. The way how this bank does it is often through a business model which is uh, less sustainable than otherwise. If it is, uh, then the bank gets bankrupt, uh, then uh, the the deposit insurance of the country, uh, uh, the bank is there, has to pay the foreigners there. And this is something which is one of the many side effects of uh, things which are not fully thought through. And uh, to build in a stronger risk factor into this incentive system is politically so far not possible. And I'm talking now of particular of the Austin experience, we had these cases where banks could use a, a highly risky business model, but at the end of the day, uh, those who use this uh, banker cannot only, how to say, are, cannot only be embarrassed, they can also run away with the non-sustainable interest rate. So what we have there, there are numbers still of things shot through which are not consistent. The other part is that there We have also not solved the problems in countries, and so it's political between countries, uh, where uh, banks have a great interest, uh, but also because of great incentives of the political loop uh, to take on government assets. Uh, Fernando referred to it in principle there should be uh, some kind of disincentives there which are so far too little and could be increased there. and the result some countries uh, with a huge financing demand finance uh, most of their financing needs domestically. They don't want to go outside because they would have to pay higher rates Them, and uh, at the end of the day uh, uh Leads to that the banking uh, 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 the connex, the nexus is not solved. And unless we have, how to say, uh, economic instruments to change these incentives, but also countries uh, with huge debts uh, uh, rely on this kind of financing, <clears throat> some countries like Austria have little incentives. Uh, to join uh, uh, this uh, uh, deposit insurance because they're very much afraid uh, they would have to bail out others, and this is something which is politically impossible. So at the end of the day, it's technical and it's political, and then both sides are to say, uh, the technical side has not been solved to say, has the political been reduced or not, or does it still stay on? As a final question, I'd like to ask you both about...
2: um... Uh, the chapter by Daniel Hardy, in which he assesses the role of the central bank in climate change. This has been a core cool message of Christine Lagarde at the ECB, but Jay Powell at the Federal Reserve takes a much more um, constrained view of his mandate. Do, do you see dangers in moving the central bank into this area?
0: Since here, had to say our... That's something what we discuss at the uh, National Bank level, but also at board level, and uh, we all have uh, slightly different views on this. Uh, my take is, uh, give you my personal one, is uh, the climate risk is so big that we cannot ignore it as a central banker, and so it has to be high on our attention side uh, uh, to deal with it. The question is the level of the involvement. Uh, uh, Where in what area should the bank be involved? Is it uh, uh, that it has to do with the way one can influence uh, the investment uh, in green uh, assets, uh, the less green assets, green, brown assets? Well, this could be one way, but the problem is, and what I've seen there again with local examples there, that a a brown a brown industry raising money, they essentially do it in order to become greener. So if you give a penalty there, then it is not the best interest there. And what we've seen more recently, uh, what is brown, what is green, depends very much on the capacity of washing it. And uh, so, yes, sir, we have to take account of it we should do our best of it but we have to be very careful in order to make it happen and here things differ i mean what i've heard from jay powell is you know it is not our premier date i would echo the same thing there but i would say uh, we have to look into that and might take and use now my own national bank there i think uh, I see a lot of inconsistent messages coming out from the difference demand there, micro, macro, whatever it is. Uh, I think the central banker has a major role because it's impacted uh, through the inflation effect there, through the financial markets effect there. So we have a great interest in making sure that the solution to the climate change challenges is a good one. And so I say our role in uh, providing in helping to channel, offering a, a discussion forum to come forward with a good solution, but not necessarily using our instruments in order to channel it, because from what they've seen from a technical point of view, this may be not the right support we could give.
3: Yeah, if I may, on, on this, because I fully agree with what uh, Robert said. Um, I think it's obvious, to everyone that uh, the financial sector is deemed to play a, a crucial role to facilitate the transition uh, towards a more sustainable economy because they are the ones that should actually made it, uh, make it make uh, it possible a huge reallocation of resources that that transition is going to require so it could be actually uh, it could actually be argued that indeed uh, central banks and supervisory organizations have a role to play in order to somewhat support, facilitate, at least not providing obstacles for this role, important role that the financial sector has to to play. But I think it's important that we do all this within the current mandate of central banks and supervisory organizations. And there are a number of things that that could and should be done. Um, Certainly, this idea of incorporating uh, climate-related risks in the assessment of uh, collateral or counterparties in monetary policy operations, or trying actually just to promote uh, the adequate assessment and management of climate-related financial risk by financial institutions themselves. This is something which is absolutely, uh, within the mandate of central banks and supervisory organizations, these type of actions could actually facilitate a monetary and financial stability, and at the same time, providing the right incentives for for banks, actually, just to to adapt their investment policies uh, in, in in direction would be more compatible with with sustainability. So that is fine. So the problem, and you talk about problems, yes, the problem arises when actually there you see already in some jurisdictions that uh, whether explicitly or implicitly, central banks and or supervisory organisations are asked to incorporate actually climate objectives within their mandates. So it's not only about actually sort to see how their mandates will actually speak in favor of adjusting some procedures, which may actually be beneficial for sustainability. No, it's simply that you have to do something with a direct, actually, uh, uh, climate type of rationale. So this is uh, is a big mistake, I believe, in doing that you will start generating some relevant policy trade-offs. That may also affect actually the independence of central banks. And all that could only lead, actually, to suboptimal uh, social, social outcome. So that's that's the risk that we are seeing some 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 places in the in the, in the world too much pressure on regulators, too much pressure on central banks, actually, to adopt directly climate-related objectives. I don't think this is the right uh, approach. Hmm? Okay.
2: Well, to to finish as usual, I've asked both my guests to recommend at least two books uh, to listeners um often one from the field and a personal choice what have you chosen um should we go first with um uh, go first with dr story.
3: wow well, it's very difficult right so um so i decided not to be too original here so i going to recommend two bestsellers <laughs> uh but a completely different nature first one is i like very much biographies and i found the one by barack obama uh, was published in 2020. Absolutely amazing! This is a wonderful combination, a very wonderful description of uh, of uh, well, what uh, number of important personal developments. How actually he was able actually to go through all this very very uh, difficult uh, period of his life and interested in challenge as well. But also, I think it's an incredibly good insight on how American politics work and the role of pragmatism. So how how politics could actually be uh, be used in order to change things a little bit to the extent that you behave in a sufficiently pragmatic but also determined way. So I like very much this uh, this book. Second one is somewhat different. Older is uh, called. I mean, some of you have read I'm Sure, but this is called the uh, the Lords of Lords of Finance by elia Quata Ahmed. i think 2014, this is an amazing book. If you are interested in central banking, central banks, money. And I think the experience of relevant central bankers in the interwar period, which is the period which is covered in this book, is incredibly uh, instructive uh, and interesting. And also it's quite fun to, to
0: read. So I will leave it there, those two recommendations.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. And Governor Holtzman? I have selected three books, uh, two from the same author who was already mentioned, uh, which have to do with Paul Tucker. Uh, we all know his book, Unelected Power. Uh, uh, I think it's something uh, which uh, asks particular governors to question themselves and to think through what they can do, whether they're overstepping it and how this can be organized. Uh, And uh, the other is the current one, which is currently touring to present this global discourse, in which he uh, tries to develop a framework in which uh, nations can interact with each other uh, economically in order not to reduce the economic basis of both uh, groups of powers there, while, how to say, are staying within their values. Uh, and is uh, also presenting it, Paul, uh, coming Monday here in Vienna at the Austrian National Banker. So I'm looking forward to the discussion. I do not always agree with Paul, often not, uh, but it makes me think, and this is this part what I, I, I appreciate. Uh, the other one is something which is so far only available in German, unfortunately, uh, uh, written in 2018 by Paul Münkler, uh, and it deals with the, uh, the war of 30 years, uh, uh, which uh, I can describe as a European catastrophe and uh, is a German trauma. And the reason is not, how to say, that this part, uh, the, 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 the part itself is interesting, how it is done. But for me, when I read it, I was stuck by, how to say, the similarities which we see there about a conflict that started out small, which, how to say, gained almost the uh, greatness of then uh, European war, because at each turn, a new actor entered the table and let the, the war track on for 30 years because it fought And I see a lot of the parallels currently what we have in the world, uh, different conflicts which emerge, which are never, how to say, extinguished, uh, and uh, which are tracking on. And uh, this is something, where if uh, people can read it, uh, is a warning in a situation what we currently have, uh, which I would like to pass on. Thank you. Well, five uh, very interesting
2: recommendations. Today I've been discussing central banks and supervisory architecture in Europe with its editors, Robert Holtzman and Fernando Restoi. Thank you both very much for coming on. Our oh, my
0: pleasure. Thanks a lot for having us.
3: My pleasure. Thank you very much.